Welcome to Ideas Untrapped, and I am your host, Toby Lawson. Ideas Untrapped is a podcast that examines the role of ideas in a political economy. It's also a podcast about spreading ideas on growth, development, and progress. This is Ideas Untrapped, and today I am speaking with Wally Smith. Wally Smith is an economist and his blog, Econ215, is one of the smartest economics blogs on the internet. You're welcome, Wally. Thank you for having me. Pleasure being here. For me, where I think it's appropriate to begin is we have high inflation, right? And yeah. unemployment is also pretty high. Yeah. So is it fair to conclude that Conventional monetary policy has failed in Nigeria. Uh, well, I wouldn't want to say that it has failed. Rather, it hasn't been given the chance to fail or not fail. I think that's where I would like to frame it. And that's because the biggest problem, I think, with monetary policy in Nigeria is the absence of a transmission mechanism. In the sense that most people are sort of agnostic to monetary policy interest rates that the lion's share of the average Nigerian, the average person is sort of agnostic to it. And, and I say that because if people actually factor these things into their competition, then why is it that the banking system today is financed largely with people putting money at 3-4% and they don't see anything wrong with that. So that tells us something that people don't perceive money as, more Nigerians don't perceive money as a store of value, rather as a means of exchange. And so because of that, they just don't see there's any value in it. And that's because partly because monetary policy for so long has been that way. We say NPR is at, today is at 12.5%, but then you're saying that banks should take money from people that are wanted of that. So because of that, you don't have a transmission mechanism for monetary policy effectively. So when interest rates rise or fall, it doesn't necessarily affect the man on the street because the man on the street doesn't see any credit to GDP is very low. So because of that, in other countries, when you adjust interest rates, everyone adjusts because everyone is feeling the direct impact immediately. So if, if interest rates are brought down, the rates on your mortgages means you have more money. Because why? Because now you have more money in your pocket because you don't have to pay so much to service your mortgage. On your credit cards, on your student loans. So because in most part of the world, everyone is in some form of credit. Credit to GDP is closer to 100 100%. So you find that anytime you adjust monetary policy, you do see significant impact on the economy. But in Nigeria's own case, for a long time, credit to GDP has moved between 15-20%. So it tells you that the economy is significantly on that level. Again, and then for a long time up until the 2000 period, you didn't really have any major means of institutional savings. So, I mean, pension funds only came into, into effect in 2004, and then I've only grown AUM over the last 14, 15 years. So you haven't had that pool that can that is sensitive to interest rates that can respond to those things. And so because of that, I would say the absence of a transmission mechanism just pretty much limits monetary policy to just focusing on those things that are within its reach and not these key economic variables of inflation, unemployment, growth, and things like that. I think that's the way I would, I would say that. So it hasn't been given the chance to fail because a lot of our focus hasn't been on developing that transmission mechanism or making it such a way that credit to GDP or money supply to GDP is quite high such that once you adjust interest rates, the impact is felt by macro variables. Currently, 
more in times interest rate tends to be geared towards the exchange rate and so that's really where most of the focus is so some people have said if you try to run a tailor series or a tailor rule for the nigerian central bank you'll find that it's it's insignificant because monetary policy doesn't seem to react to more times in changes in inflation or changes in growth or unemployment it tends to respond more times to changes in in the exchange rate or developments that go on in the exchange rate market as against these key variables yeah. yeah that leads into where i was going i mean you took us there basically does this mental model and of course given how you explain how people behave around the economic variables and the expectations does it explain why we are obsessed both at the masses level and at policy level does it explain our obsession with exchange rates because it seems the only conversation that interests most people yes yes i think it's partly a legacy of being used to a stable exchange rate for a long time so of course we've been used to a very stable exchange rate for a long time in our post-independence history between 1960 and 1985 the exchange was pretty stable and fairly strong against the u.s dollar so what that meant was that people had gotten accustomed to it prior to 1985 you now held the same value as 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 wherever you travel to it pretty much had comparable value to whatever currency it was and so your purchasing power was largely intact but since 1985 when we didn't have the reserves to be able to underwrite that very large keeping the naira stable at those levels i mean we've had to take these shocks every now and then and so ultimately most people's minds have just drifted away you know every time your naira is devalued everyone is feeling it you know everyone pretty much feels the pinch from a policy standpoint, however, it goes back to that transmission cycle. The CBN often feels that because it cannot influence inflation directly, rather what it will do is it will try and use the exchange rate as some means of limiting inflationary pressures in the economy. So if it can keep the exchange rate stable to a large extent, it can keep inflation moderate or not uh, out of range. But the problem with that, however, is that the math is increasingly no longer adding up. Now I say so because historically, Currencies are always a function of, from a perspective, whatever your current account, whatever the developments are in your current account. For a long time, I mean, the last, between 2000 and 2010, I mean, 2014 as well, crude oil prices have stayed very high. I mean, we lived in an era where oil prices were much higher than they ever were historically. And so, over that period, our current account was essentially underwritten by this very strong run-up in crude oil prices. And so, we could afford to have some semblance of control over the currency. However, from a volume perspective, our oil production has remained at the same level. It hasn't gone anywhere. So if your oil production hasn't gone anywhere, then you just relied really on the price increase between 2000 and the super commodity cycle that people talk about between 2000 and 2014 to just blow up your current account on the supply side. And then on the demand side, however, the key driver of your demand is your population. Your population is increasing. If your population is increasing, they are also getting richer. Their tastes are also becoming more sophisticated. And so what you find is that things that maybe we didn't used to import too much previously were also important. I mean, today Nigeria is a very large importer of services. There's a lot of focus on the good side of things, but on the services side, we run a very large deficit. Education, travel, healthcare, IT. I mean, we run quite a very large deficit. In fact, the deficit on the services account is many multiples over what you have on the goods account. But Curiously, all focus is always on the goods account. 
on tomatoes, on things like that. Whereas on the sales side, you have a very big deficit. Now, try to project that going forward. What's happening going forward? If our population continues to increase and more and more people will get sophisticated, whereas on the export side, our crude oil exports are not increasing from a production standpoint, there's going to be a drop-off point wherein we just can't cope, we just can't finance it. And so the error of us being able to manage or at least restrict the error within it is, is getting, we're getting to the point where that goes up. Five years ago, if you told anybody oil prices would be $30, most people would say, no, it's not possible. But today, we're now getting used to the fact that crude oil prices can be $30, $40, and it's not the end of the world. Nothing's happening. So I think from a long-term view, if you look at it from that viewpoint and look, oil prices are unlikely going to be higher going forward. I mean, next 10 years, where do you see crude oil prices higher or lower? It's most likely going to be lower because I mean, people are changing their behaviors. More people are talking about climate change, green and everything. And so the outlook looks more likely lower outlook for crude oil. Whereas on the import demand side, we are still growing. You still have a large growing population that continues to grow. So they're also becoming more educated, which means the range of goods they consume are even more. And if it's not available to produce locally, then it just means your dollar demand pressure will be there. And so that phase or that cycle whereby we could think that, well, if you mine the currency, you can, to a large extent, mine the exchange rate, we'll have to give up at some point. I think mentally, if we were to start shaping ourselves, we should start preparing for an era of weaker era going forward. I mean, this is not different from the history of all emerging market currencies. All emerging market currencies have a losing track record against the U.S. dollar. So. I think it's something that we should start moving away from this whole period where we thought we could manage it. I think increasingly we're going to be moving to a future where you just have to give up. You're swimming against the current, and so you just pretty much have to give up. It then shifts the conversation away from should we still keep on trying to restrain it to how do we live with a world where we have to sort of become less reliant on imports or things that make us go crazy on, <laughs> on dollars, I think. If the answer is to build our own production capacities, sure, build it, but at a cost-competitive point. Because if you're not building at a cost-competitive point, then you're merely impoverishing your own people, as to say. Now, from what you're talking about, we have some tough choices to make. And I've always wondered about this. Given some of the structural reforms, that phrase is so loaded, <laughs> <laughs> that is needed to really face the reality and solve some of these problems. Should the CBN, though, be at the front and center of economic policy making? Because basically the status quo is that we have people on the executive side just sitting dock and waiting for the next thing that the CBN is going to do. And again, I also worry about the long-term legitimacy implications of this. The CBN is becoming so powerful, you know. So should the CBN really be at the forefront of this, or do we really need a lot more initiative and ideas precisely from the executive? If I remember my my graduate school or my undergraduate school economics very well. What one thing they used to distinguish between monetary and fiscal policy is that monetary policy is just how do you rearrange resources around a point. It can't take you from point A to point B. What it can do is it can tell you if you're at point A, okay, this is perhaps the best thing to do at point A, but it can't take you from point A to point B. To move from point A to point B, you need fiscal policy. 
And in our own case, I don't think we've gotten our fiscal policy quite well. And, and partly it's partly due to the way we think about it. I'll explain. What's the size of the Nigerian government as a share of GDP? Let's just take a guess. I mean, in other countries, the government as a share of GDP is a much bigger ratio. In Nigeria, that number is between 3, 4, maybe best guess, 5% of GDP. So what you're doing is you're asking someone who is 3, 4, 5% of GDP to do a lot. I mean, there's so much he can do. Our government is not very big, but we have expectations that they can do a whole lot. Whereas from the surface of it, I mean, they can't really do much. The Nigerian government is playing a record budget of 10 trillion naira this year. 10 trillion naira. Now go and look at government spending in the last three years. In real terms, it's been shrinking. So every year we have been announcing a record budget. In real terms, the government share of the economy has been shrinking. It's like we think the government can do a lot, that the government is big or large enough. But that's because there's a disconnect. The Nigerian government is very small as a share of the economy. But it exerts an influence way larger than its share of the economy is. And that's where the disconnect is. The real world is the reason why we have that disconnect is because the Nigerian government still, by laws, by policies, still controls very large segments of the economy that nothing pretty much goes on. However, from the financial side of things, the cash side of things, the government is not able to do that. But from a policy and influence standpoint, the government wields so much influence over the economy. But in the actual Naira and Cobalt terms, it's not. And so the first thing we need to disconnect with is we need to say, okay, where really do we want the state to be? What really do we want the state to be doing in the economy? Do we want a state that's building everything, that's building railway lines, airports, postal services, ports. Do we want the government to be involved in all of this? Or do we want the government to just be a regulator and a facilitator of business? I think that's where I think the fundamental question is. That's where the disconnect is. Because it is only when the economy, the private sector economy becomes large enough that the government can generate the taxes it does to match the level of the ambition it currently has. But today, they have the ambition, but they don't have the balance sheet. And so that's why they extend so much borrowing. Still one, if everybody says you're 100%, for every hundred naira, the government and they spend most of it on there. Or even if you can say, okay, this is a this is a period of a shock. But in normal times, that number is also an uncomfortable number. So and that's because you have very large ambitions, but you simply don't have the balance sheet to underwrite it. And so rather than borrowing extensively to pursue these ambitions, it's easier to say, okay, you know what? Let the government step back and certain things the government doesn't need to do. And those things it doesn't need to do. Liberalize those sectors, open up those sectors, let private capital come in. I mean, I always ask myself, if you look at the amount of money that went to the telecom sector in the last, since 2001, could the government have spent that much money? No. If they had tried it, they would have indebted, they would have run, run up so much debt. That's the same way we need to think of it. Is that Because the, the, the real work needs to be done on the fiscal side, and the real work that the fiscal side needs to do is say, okay, you know what, we're not going to be able to underwrite it. We're going to allow private guys, and you create the conditions for private capital to come in and achieve those things. Now, once you do that, every economy that grows is always a function of a large influx of capital, whether it's local or domestic, private, capital needs to come in. There are some sectors that government can do much more infrastructure, heavy infrastructure, but more often than not, you just need private capital, private innovation to come in, go into a sector, expand that sector, expand out to significantly create jobs, and then you see structural changes. Well, in our case, it's really because the government really spends so much on itself. I mean, not spend so much on itself. There's so much focus on the government. 
Yet, the government size of the share of the economy is not that very big. To match the scale of the ambition, they often borrow extensively and they can't even borrow so much. I mean, the Nigerian government is going to borrow $5 billion. It's $5 billion this year, I mean, from the IMF and the World Bank. They're going to borrow $5 billion. Whereas in South Africa, they're announcing a stimulus of $25 billion. We are bigger than the South African economy. Yet, they're announcing a much larger number in dollars than we are. In fact, if you look at our budgets, they spend more in dollars than we are. So the real connection is that, look, we are bigger than them, we have a bigger economy, but the government is not as big as it is. And so let the government match its influence to its size. To do that means you need to allow more private capital to go through. If you allow more private capital to come in, the government gets more tax revenues. It's a cheaper way, it's a less risky way of financing development and growth in many sectors than the traditional way where we Everything must go through government, and which is the philosophy of successive Nigerian government. I think the only time when you could say we had a very strong growth boom, which is between 2000 and 2007, that's the period when the government substantially reduces the influence. Until we go back to that mindset, I think that's really where the, the work is. Government needs to pull back and reduce its influence and be more in, interested in facilitating growth, more in terms of directing, more in terms of ensuring that balance. Yeah, because sometimes what we see if you let the private sector run amok, there's the issue of market failure which could occur, and if market failure occurs, people are going to get equity, there's no equity. And so let government be more on the regulatory side, and getting that balance right, such that you create enough incentive for private investors or private capital to find its way into key sectors of the economy, create jobs, create growth. I think that's really where we should be moving towards. Until we get to that point, all that will merely happen is any time monetary policy tries to cash is we will just be in the same point. We are not going to move from point A to point B. I mean, a very simple example is to look at agriculture. The central bank has pushed in quite a lot of money over the last four years. Where is our GDP today? We are not back to the levels of growth we were in before 2016. So it's like we haven't really gone anywhere, but there's been more money pumped into that sector, but you just can't see it. And, so, and even if you see, and then even, even for what it is, we still have food inflation that is still quite high as well. So it's telling you that, look, there's just some things that are not quite clear. Then. So I, I think for monetary policy, the evidence is always clear. It can only move you around a point. To go from that point to the next level or to a new level, you need fiscal policy actions. And fiscal policy actions, how is the government using its influence? Is taxing powers? Is it relaxing it? Is it expanding it? How is it allowing people or, or private capital to take initiative? I think that's really where a lot of focus should be on that going forward. I think one thing COVID has done for us is that it's helped us to realize that, look, that option exists. I mean, before COVID, the government seemed to think they could do everything. I mean, they were reluctant to prioritize many sectors, they were reluctant to, to let go of certain subjects. But now, those discussions are increasingly becoming on the table. So I think, I think that's the key point of COVID, that it's removed the log from our eyes around the ideology that, look, this is it, it has to be big government. Now, I think everybody's coming to the point that, look, that whole idea, you don't have the balance sheet. If you don't have the balance sheet, let those that have the money go and do it. Mm-hmm. So on that last note, I think is where I disagree with you slightly. And here is it. If we look at it in crude economic terms, right, I would say economic policy making has a supply problem. Okay, We can talk about people and how much expectation, how much demand we make of government. What I'm not sure of is whether the government itself, despite the reality of its size and capability, as you just laid it out, 
I doubt the government itself see a reduced role for itself in society, in the economy at large. I mean, you just talked about COVID. It's a huge reality check. But I just read the economic sustainability plan, and it's still a Soviet-style planned economy model with government bureaucrats front-loading all the reforms and the initiatives. So are we really learning? That's my question. Uh, I think what I've come to realize with Nigerian government so with change is that you're not always going to get all the very quick things you want. You're not always going to get that. It's always a very slow process. So what, what you should do is the few things you can get, get it, but you're not going to see a 360 degree turn around in terms of thinking. However, like I said, there are a few things to sort of look at. A year ago, several panels would always ask, what about privatization? I mean, we had a privatization program running from 2000. 2007, we had a slowdown. Maybe picked up a piece under Jonathan's government. But then since 2015, it's just, it's like it's off the table completely. And however, those noises are starting to come up again. They're starting to talk about things like, okay, okay maybe, maybe we need to do a bit of asset sales. Then, of course, there's the issue of reducing size of government and things like that. The sense I always get is that it will always be difficult to expect to see a 360-degree turnaround change because of the way, maybe philosophically, you could say maybe the way this government is structured or their ideology. But I would say maybe, maybe, maybe yes, maybe I sounded a bit too optimistic, but I think the word is that change is starting to occur. That tilt is that, look, we can't continue this 100% government-funded or government approach because we are almost at our borrowing limits. If we maintain that approach, we are just going to borrow so much that, I mean, then most of the things we'll borrow it to do will not be able to repay those loans back effectively. And so I think even if it's not this year, over the next two to three years, someone is going to start to see, look, we can't continue on this path. And I, I mean, that's just, that's just my thing. Mentally, there will still be that sign of, no, let's not do it. But just look at some of the things. I mean, you know, some people say with subsidy, they already put in place things that sort of go against what they initially planned to say. But I think the sense is that slowly, I don't think you should expect a very quick or sudden 360 turnaround change. Change here tends to be very slow unless you have a, a government that is interested in it. However, we can just take one or two wins and I think that's all, which is really a political thing. I don't think that's an economic policy thing. I think from the economic policy standpoint, however, is the awareness that, look, the government cannot continue to be the one that carrying the entire body for, for investment or making certain investments in the economy. I think that's the awareness, I would say. You talked about the defensive mindset, you know, making small changes to the status quo and how it's not really what is going to take us out of this mess. What are the things that we really need to do in a big way right now? I mean, when I think about that point, one very good example I always talk to people about was when Jonathan won the first election and uh, we had Mrs. Ungozi as the finance minister and the coordinating minister of the economy. And in putting forward a reform plan, she only planned to cut recurrent expenditure by 4% over four years, which I personally felt was not ambitious enough. So, I mean, it seems we are used to making all these small marginal changes here and there but what are the things that we really need to go big on right now 
I think the first big thing I would say is in terms of liberalization. So we need a new a new growth sector. What sectors of the economy are we going to start driving growth at? If you look at our GDP, the way the Nigerian economy is structured, it's roughly around four or five sectors, agriculture, oil, manufacturing, some light manufacturing, trade and services, right? Now, yeah. oil is, oil is, I mean, is where you have a lot of capital. I mean, there's virtually nothing you're going to do there that hasn't been done. And of course, it's driven by whatever the commodity prices. Manufacturing is, if an economy like Nigeria that is large, well, maybe not like I'll say, let me see, the Nigerian population, we have a very large population. Now, our labor force is over 100 million. That labor force is largely unskilled, or semi-skilled to unskilled, but definitely not highly skilled. So you look at your labor supply. Your labor supply is such that it's dominated by people who are semi-skilled to unskilled largely. Now, look at the structure of the economy, where a lot of uh, activity is, is on the services side and in oil. And then you have a very small, I mean, well, trade and service services is, is a big share of it. And then you have agriculture. The sectors you should be focusing on from a labor standpoint, looking at labor supply and labor demand, are those sectors that are labor intensive. Those sectors typically would be agriculture and manufacturing. But the point with agriculture is that, yes, it's there, but the level of work required to get in agricultural productivity to a level that is globally competitive is so, is so much. And of course, if you've not invested a lot in the science of it, it's going to require a lot of work. Manufacturing looks like the clear winner. I mean, it's what countries that have lifted people, a lot of people out of, I mean, except India, which had a very good educational system. Unfortunately, we don't have that kind of luxury. Is they've always focused on their manufacturing. For us, what do we need to make manufacturing work? Is bringing down costs, bringing down costs, cost of producing things here. Clearly for me, in terms of the sectors the government should focus on is what are those two key things we need to bring down cost of producing in Nigeria? Power, logistics. The power sector, we said, okay, the big thing is the government needs to get out of the power sector and then there are other reforms that need to take place. The next big thing is logistics. Moving goods across Nigeria is not cheap. If you look at it, I mean, most people transport things in Nigeria by road. But roads don't move people. Rails move people. Rail trains move people. Most countries in the world that are sufficient, they have railway connections so that they can move things very cheaply. Next big sector I think that in terms of liberalization is logistics. Everything and this sector can unleash so much private capital going into it because much of the capital currently in this sector is land in government. The airports are owned by the government, the ports are owned by the government, the railway lines are owned by the government, even the postal service is owned by the government. So I think if the Nigerian government is okay, you know what? From a mental standpoint, we're just going to say, okay, we're just going to pull out of this sector. We're going to reduce our involvement. We're going to try and bring in private capital into this sector. Ports, airports, we have so many ports. Airports, we have so many airports. Uh, railway lines, we're, I mean, we're building quite a lot. And then postal service. If the government is, okay, you know what, embark on a privatization, liberalization program in this sector, whereby the government will look to sell some assets in this sector to raise private and then also bring in private capital along some identified projects. I mean, you have the proper port there. All the issues there are well documented. It's small. It struggles for to even move goods from the port is, is, is a nightmare. You have other ports all across the side of the country that are bringing in goods and difficult. Then you have railway lines that are still, I mean, there's been a lot of work in the last three years, but clearly the government doesn't have the balance sheet to do all the work that's required. And then you have a postal service that just doesn't work. That's one thing I still don't understand why the government still owns a postal service. These are assets that we could easily sell 
or privatize or find some venture or some way by which we can reduce government ownership or government involvement in these sectors. Logistics and then by so doing, if you bring in private capital, creates quite a lot of jobs, reduces the cost of logistics or moving goods. Because what happens today if you're a manager or manufacturer, whoever you are, you have to set up your own logistics fleet by the side to ensure you deliver goods across Nigeria. That's also a cost of production. And that's also significant. It makes Nigerian goods non-competitive. So I think this is one sector that if the government were to adopt a mindset of, okay, we are going to reduce our influence in the next two to three years, we're going to try and bring in private capital to be involved in the ownership and management of these assets. I'm pretty sure we'll be able to attract not just enough capital into that sector. We'll also be able to do quite a lot in bringing down the cost. I think the goal really is let's try and bring down the cost. Like I said, logistics in all development theories, they always tell you the cost of, they always make an assumption, the cost of moving goods within a country is zero. Why? Because every policymaker works towards that objective. Let's bring down the cost of moving goods within our countries to as low as possible. Here is because everybody uses roads, everybody's on the road, yes, it's expensive. I would say the first thing is fixing logistics. If we can get anywhere that fix logistics, I mean, between fixing telecoms, power, and logistics, I think we would have brought down a significant share of the cost of doing business. That would have ensured that at least the manufacturing sector can thrive to a large extent. That's my thinking. The second thing I would say is, of course, in education and health. I mean, the Nigerian education sector, I think, is due for, again, that huge inflow of private capital. Of course, we don't want to say go down the route of things in America where healthcare is expensive. But I think the point today is that it's just so grossly underfunded. I mean, and this is what COVID has exposed. We are building isolation centers and stadiums. We're not thinking that, okay, beyond this COVID, what would happen? Yeah, so I think it's time for us to go back to that again. In what ways can we get the private to come and invest in hospital healthcare? I mean, one easy option I think is We've seen it with the pension industry, so that everybody has a pension, or at least the idea is to get everybody to have a pension account, which is basically dedicated savings for your retirement. I think we can also come up with a similar scheme for healthcare, such that, I mean, everybody puts away some money, at least a small portion, and increase this pool of savings for healthcare insurance system. And then once you have effective demand for purchasing healthcare products, then of course, on the supply side, activity can go on towards creating hospitals or basically outlets for meeting that demand. But you need to have effective demand. And the best estimate for effective demand I can see is, if I can see there's a fund where people are saving, pension-style healthcare, health insurance. I think that's the word I'm really trying to grab. If you could do something like that, then at least, you see a lot of people saying, okay, I mean, I know that there are this much people in the system who would at least buy. And that can form the primary layer for people who then want the government to come with secondary things. Because with healthcare, not everybody's going to fall sick at the same time. If everybody... To live very well. So you can sort of pull insurance risks and this sort of thing. I think the current system of having everything just rely largely on government healthcare hospitals or government healthcare plans, I think clearly is not working. I mean, we can have a pool, a pension style healthcare system. I think, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think that would work for us. Education, I think, is always tricky because people would always say there's all kinds of arguments pro or against it. But I think what is clear is that going forward, Societies that have a large share of their population being unskilled will struggle. Okay, so we need to get a scenario where a large component of our labor forces, maybe maybe going from where we are today, whereby most people are unskilled to highly skilled is a, is a bit of a stretch. But moving to a point where at least the minimum you could have is semi-skilled, at least people who can do the basic things in society. I mean, I think the basic uh, skill sets required in a modern economy 
can use computers or are computer literate will be that that will require investment. Whether there is enough market for private investors to sort of look into that sector is a different thing entirely. I don't think that's there now because just looking at the numbers, I mean, number of people who don't even go to school, it's a very large number. So if you look at that number, then for these people, there's no incentive for them to go to school because they're surviving, they didn't go to school. So you have to make it advantageous for them to want to see the need to go to school such that there's actually a need for it. And I think I'm not too sure the private sector may be where the solution lies. Maybe it may still be something for government, but of course, the financing, I don't think the government has it. So we need to find some mix or some balance, such a way that maybe elementary, primary and secondary school level, the government involvement is heavy. And then university onwards, it's purely a private sector thing entirely, not, not so much the government. Mm. It's a very important point you made on manufacturing. I mean, I always try to tell friends and people that I talk to about these things that when people talk about investment in education, which is important, no doubt. I always tell them that some of the best studies on educational gains for national income put the timeline at around 30 years. So even if we start investing in education today, we are not going to see the effect until about 25, 30 years from now. But like you said, we have tens, possibly hundreds of millions of people in the workforce right now who need jobs, who need income. So light manufacturing, things like textile, garments, leather making, construction, they are very, very important. And it should be the direction we go in terms of industrialization. Construction is also quite important. I mean, we have a cement billionaire who is the richest man in Africa and also one of the highest cement prices in the world land of uh, paradoxes. On the investment front, do you think we are burning a lot of, should I say, reputational capital by putting government revenue ahead of investments in the country? Let me see, government revenues or I'm trying to deal okay, with now, what I'm trying to say is that um, Again, going back to the economic sustainability plan, in trying to rationalize why we need this plan, I don't know if you read or had time to pass that document. Yeah, I looked through it. And, uh, yeah. Again, I might be reading too much into this, which kind of tells me a lot is that before getting to the second point where the plan talked about unemployment and the number of people that are going to be added to the unemployment market in Nigeria, the very first item on that list is that for the remainder of the year, the FAAC is going to disburse about 450 billion naira monthly. Now, which is a lot less than the 700 billion naira that they were disbursing a year ago from now. So it feels to me like the priority for reforms, at least the way we are justifying it now, is to fill government coffers, which can collide with investors' interests, especially if we are trying to reform and if we are trying to get a lot of private capital in. I mean, a lot of these investments are going to come in and 
there's going to be a cost discovery phase. But before some of these investments mature, if we put a lot of pressure on them via taxation and other means of generating government revenue, are we not burning our reputational capital in the long term by that obsession? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think one thing that, that's clear, clear from looking at that plan is, uh, and it goes back to the point you mentioned earlier about whether the mindset has changed, it's clear that it's still a status quo plan, effectively. It's how do we retain the status quo? I mean, a lot of the plans there on paper look and sound nice, but the question is, I mean, it looks like we're just going back to the status quo of big government and everything. And it's one of the biggest problems with policymakers is try not to change the current status quo a bit too much. Let's not use too much of our political capital. And, and it's, it's a defensive thing. It's, it's purely defensive. It's not one that is saying, okay, we're in a fix. We don't have the revenues. Let's use this as an opportunity to reform. Unfortunately, the way it is, is it, it, perhaps it's a symbol of the time. One of the things with reforms is that timing is very important. Maybe they just feel this is not a good time from a revenue standpoint to want to do that. I don't see how quite a number of the plans they put forward in any way will inspire confidence in any foreign investor I mean, or in any mm-hmm. private capital investor because what you're saying is the going basically saying you guys are fair game. I mean, the body language looks like that. I mean, this year is we're going to get as much money as possible to try and fund ourselves so that we can keep the status quo in place. Not how do we ensure, find a way so that certain things that we used to do before, maybe we no longer do them, maybe let somebody else come and take the burden, more like lay the challenge down to the private sector. But what you continue to see is, again, is, is that defensive mindset is, let's not tweak the status quo too much. Let's build the houses, 300,000 houses, let's build this, let's do that, let's let's try and grow our, our own revenues. And I think it's just a reflection of the philosophy behind the government, which is government still has a very large role to play in the economy. And I think that's the biggest problem with how we are responding to COVID is that we are not responding to it by using it as an advantage to make certain structural changes. I mean, we are not taking that opportunity to say, okay, no, we are not going to spend as much as we used to. We're going to try and do as much as we can. But then, of course, those areas where we don't see government continue to play a very large role, we'll just try and leave. But what are you seeing? You're seeing the government wants to build houses, wants to build a lot of roadworks, just to try and keep things going. You know, that's what they're, they're saying. And it's back to almost similar to what we saw in 2016, whereby they're saying, okay, we need to spend a lot to try and do things around. I think it's just keeping it up to school. And, and I think it's thinking around that same problem I said earlier, whereby the government is 4% of GDP, but somehow believes that because it's spending 10 trillion naira this year, that 10 trillion naira should move the economy. I think mm. it's, it's back to that mindset. Our budget has increased in nominal terms in the last five years. It's increased. We had a record number. I mean, every year was a record. But yet, in real terms, the government has shrunk over that period. So, are you saying that is we are going to build 300,000 houses or build roads all over the federation? That's what's going to change the economy? No. I mean, well, as I said, it goes back to that mindset of we are big enough, we can do a lot. I mean, all we just need to do is spend a bit more out of our program. And I think that's where the philosophy comes back. And again, goes back to it. The government still thinks it can do a lot. And how, how are they going to finance that? It's going to be via debt. Most of the increments in government spending will be debt financed. And what's also annoying is that it will be debt financed into projects with no return capable of paying back the debt. Mm. 
So had it been was investing in some players that are paying themselves back, yeah, you can understand. But most of it is going to be free, free infra, infra that nobody pays for, or houses that will be sold at price levels that I don't know. Just, just don't make sense. Let's talk about the national debt. Some people would say that, oh yeah, our debt to GDP ratio is still low, and that there's nothing to worry about. And of course, some other people who I inclined to agree with see signs of uh, trouble ahead especially how much that is going into debt servicing you know i think it's over 90 percent of our recurrent expenditure in the current fiscal year if i'm right in your view how big a trouble are we in on that front i think the, the big worry for me with nigeria's debt is on the external side and this year we're on track to get get above 32 billion so we're on track to go back to where we were in nominal terms in 2005. Again, overlay that with the long-term picture for oil. The long-term picture for oil is one of the declining pattern. And so 10 years down the line, where do you see oil prices trending towards? The mix of our debt is also worrisome because the pattern looks like increasingly the government will continue to borrow more via euro bonds. And this year is an outlier, so we've been able to tap the IMF money. Again, it's concessionary because that window was there. The question is next year, two years, three years, if we face more shocks, what are we going to do? Increasingly, financing will be expensive. It will no longer be cheap. The era of us having a, a very low USD cost of funding or, or USD interest expense of being, being 3% is increasingly over for Nigeria because increasingly more of our debt mix is commercial. It's increasingly euro bonds and, and the sort of because it's, it's those kind of instruments, you always worried if long-term oil prices are going down, I mean, a large chunk of our export proceeds is oil, then it means long-term, you get to a point where your ability to service those debts become a problem. I mean, every year, Eurobond is increasingly part of the plan. We are borrowing as if we're Americans, as if we earn dollars naturally. But yeah, if oil prices stay at these levels for the next three to five years, there's no how we won't run into some, some issues with or we won't have to have difficult conversations around restructuring some of these debts. And so I think that's really where my big concern is. It's really on that external front. Increasingly, it looks like every year there's going to be two, three billion dollars euro bonds sold there. And well, for now, everybody will keep borrowing money. But today, well, there are some African countries, Zambia, Angola, where the conversation around euro bond debt is, is difficult. It's, it's not a straightforward argument. It's, it's about how you're going to restructure, and you're always worried because in those instances, your fate is now left to some investment bank you hire is able to negotiate creditors or, or, or work things. And then we go back to the environment we're in just before 2005 when we had to pay down our external debt. So that is the, is the big worry for me. On the local side, however, yes, it's Naira. You can print Naira and give everybody Naira, but of course, the fundamental problem is what are we borrowing all these bonds for? Are we investing it in projects that are earning a return that can cover the cost of debt? I think that's really the question. And, and that's why I would say I'm worried because most of what we are financing, what we are borrowing for is recurring spending. So it's zero naira to back to the project. Now, for the capital projects we do finance, it's free. So in other words, you're going to build a road that nobody's going to pay a toll on. So where's money going to come from? For me, that's always the bigger problem is that we're not investing them in projects that the narrow return back is clear or the, the path to paying that debt back is clear. 
although it doesn't cost anything, you do know that at some point the government continues to borrow because government influence is there, it will weigh on all of us. It will have implications for all of us. I mean, no matter how bullish you are on Nigeria, you can't escape your macros. That's always one thing that always comes to us every now and then. No matter how we talk up Nigeria's growth or talk up anything, few, three years down the line, if the macros are wrong, it will always come and impact whatever business you're involved with. Yes, the debt-to-GDP ratio is low, but as somebody will say, you can't eat GDP. If you can't convert that GDP to taxable revenues, then it's a problem. And which is where we are today, because a large share of our economy is informal. So you can't tax those revenues. There's no clear line of sight over how government is going to extract taxes from those sectors. That, again, is partly a function of the structure of our economy. So again, back to labor and capital share. In most economies globally, labor share of GDP is very high. What has happened is that over time, it's come down. But if you look at most countries going back, more than half of the GDP is coming from labor. Now, so because of that, the larger share of government revenues comes from personal income tax as against corporate income taxes. And that's because of this labor share of GDP thing. So if you have that kind of economy where everybody is involved in some form of labor and then government is getting taxes from there. But now flip that to Nigeria. In Nigeria, reverse is the case. Capital share of GDP is way bigger than, I think the number is 65, 25. It's way bigger than labor share of GDP. And it's not surprising that what? Corporate income taxes are way bigger than personal income taxes. But corporate income taxes have a limit. You can't tax all the companies to death. You get, you get, you get, I mean, unless you are going to have to raise your corporate income taxes to 50%. And in an economy where the government is not doing a lot to provide for companies, it's going to be increasingly difficult. So there is always that need for some holistic thinking around how our economy is built. You get, if the GDP is structured in such a way that is heavily intensive in those that are not paying many taxes or is capital intensive so that a lot of that capital is coming from outside the economy and to keep it competitive, you have to ensure tax rates are low or favorable to those guys. I mean, your government is not going to gain as much revenues as it can. However, you are abundant in labor, semi-skilled or, or low-skilled labor that cannot work, cannot be involved in the formal sector. So there's a whole layer of boxes that we don't put together to say that, okay, this is the whole picture and that until we start to connect this whole picture together, policies then become a function of us trying to link up this whole picture together. But what I always see every time is, let's just leave the status quo intact. Get, don't scatter anything. Get, let's just have uh, some money here, changes at the margin, nothing changing or, or significant. I mean, if you are going to spend in infrastructure, do it for 10 years, attract private capital, have a target. I mean, I think the biggest thing I always say is, is a lack of ambition. I mean, we should be spending way lot more in infrastructure. We should be doing way lot more, getting more private hands in funding into infrastructure, or even not even private, DFI money into infrastructure. But it's always, let's just keep the status quo intact. Let's build some small roads here, 200,000 houses there, and nothing's going to really change. Mm. Meanwhile, the problem then is, you're still borrowing higher to finance. And that's why I said that, if we are not thinking of how that borrowing is going to pay itself back from itself, if a company is issuing a bond or a company wants to borrow money from a bank, what the bank looks at is, what are you investing in? Okay, can that project generate the returns to pay me back? If it can, yes, I'll give you a loan. But if it can't, then ultimately, I'm betting that somewhere you are rich enough to give me that money. And that's the tax to GDP argument that, don't worry, it's low. But you cannot squeeze that money from GDP if it doesn't exist. It's not there. I think at this point, what I want to ask is there's a lot to do. I mean, yes. 
from everything from the insightful analysis you just given us what are the changes that we need to make on the political front that can really shift this mindset this unambitious defensive mindset that has become a perennial problem in policy making what would really move the lever in terms of do we need to change our electoral laws do we need to amend the constitution what will really change because i mean if government needs to cut spending cutting the labor force of the government is a problem you're going to run into some resistance from and i mean legislators are not willing to cut their pay and so many other constraints at different points you look so what are the political changes that would really shift this mindset and then we'll start to see some real credible progress yeah in fact that was a very difficult difficult question i know Um, right I think one of the clear changes, which is clear, is we need to do it with a bicameral legislative system. I think just have one legislative system. I mean, that's my thing. We won't just have one system representatives. I mean, I think one of the problems with the system we run is that it's designed pretty much to prevent the problems of regionalism or the problems we had with, with regionalism, which is an inherent tendency towards uh, talking about breaking up the union and things like that. Whether that works well in an economy, how that sort of melds into the economic policy framework of the government, I think is, is difficult. It's, I think it ultimately boils down to the leadership. If I was to say, maybe personally, is some could say maybe from an age standpoint, you know, maybe it's an age thing. You know, maybe people from a particular generation just don't see the urgency of change, or are not hungry enough to see the need to change certain things. You know, but for a political system, I, I'm not a political economist. I think I'll just tap out and just say. So many ideas, but what is clear is it doesn't work. It clearly doesn't work. The current system just leaves no pressure on anybody to want to force a change in the, in the economic system, the way the, the economic financial system is run. I think it's. I think I'll just just leave the politics alone. I mean, no answers on the politics. No answers on politics. It's, I, I think the, the only thing that I would say is just by camera. Just do it by camera and just leave on one side. The politics I, I, always always beats me every time because. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I feel you. But unfortunately, that's where all the solutions lie. That's really where our solutions exactly. are. Because if you can't call the politics well, then everything you're saying is just theorizing. Because in most countries that are going well, a political system that is viewed as credible by the people. And that was once the people view the political system as credible, as legitimate. And now it could be a dictatorship, it could be a democratic system, it could be parliamentary, it could be regional, it could be US-type presidential system. Once people perceive that system to be credible, I think this is what we've seen in certain countries like Botswana and in some countries like Singapore where the leadership has legitimacy. And I think what you tend to see is that everything tends to work. But in our case, I guess, because the way our politics is structured is largely driven around the distance between the voters and the people who they are voting for. So if it's driven by, okay, tribal, religious, is he my man, is he going to help me, and things like that. So, because it's still driven by that, you almost guarantee that it's not going to change because the toll on political leaders to continue to satisfy the people who put them there is so large and detracts away from them focusing on the real things that matter, which is fixing the economy and things like that. So they always focus on 
how do I perpetrate myself in this office? And I think that's really where the problem is. I'm not sure. I think the word perhaps is, is an undemocratic solution, but within the context of a democracy, we are just pretty much hoping, hoping for luck. I think that's it. We're just pretty much hoping that maybe we get a leader who is strong enough to force through changes and who is thoughtful enough to sort of see the reason why there's a need for change, I think. The presidential system's biggest problem is that it puts in so much on whoever is at the head. And so if you're unable to get the head right, then that means pretty much everything flows from there. So I think if we're trying to change, maybe some people will say maybe having a political president and maybe a prime minister, I think. Maybe a powerful prime minister who is able to get on the side of getting the work done. And maybe that's the way to go. But I don't know if, if, if I'm sounding too theoretical, but I think at least the president handles the politics and then the prime minister has the, he has the legroom to go about how he needs to fix the economy or fix key issues, security and things like that. And the president is just purely the guy who handles all the politics. I, guess. I mean, that, that's my thinking. We need some person who is shielded from that need to desire to satisfy people. We need to separate that technocrat arm from the political arm and ensure that the technocrat arm focuses on what it's supposed to do to a large extent covering the ambitions of the president that is voted in. The current system we have places so much pressure on who is the president that he has to be somebody who is smart, who is clever. I mean, if you could say, if you could change it, then it just means we have to put so many qualifications on who becomes president that it's only somebody who is extremely, <laughs> extremely brilliant or charismatic in every way possible that should be president. Because that's implicitly what we're saying. We're saying that the president has so much power, and because he has so much power, hopefully he's able to get a team together. But in reality, what we've seen is that if you are relying on luck, maybe you get a leader who is strong enough to, to push through the change. What if you don't get that kind of leader? What if what if you get somebody who's not in that shape or mold? And then you're stuck waiting for the next four years and things like that. So I think that's really where our issues lie. Yeah. So much to think about. It's been great speaking to you, Wally. Thank you so okay. much. Yeah, thanks, Billy. You can subscribe to the podcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and the rest. Or you can just subscribe directly at our website, ideasontrap.com. Thank you, and see you next time.